0: Welcome to a special compilation episode of the internal comms podcast. My name is Katie McCauley, and I've spent a 30 year career helping organisations inform, inspire and motivate their people. In this show, I sit down with leading lights from the world of business, communication and academia to explore ways we might improve the way organisations communicate with their people. The curtain will shortly go up on season five of the show, but before it does, let's take a meander through some of my favorite moments of the last season. I first heard Tasmin Chopra speak at the IABC Virtual World Conference in 2020. She spoke with such eloquence and insight about equality and inclusion that I knew immediately I had to invite her on the show. In this clip, I asked Tasmin to reflect on what the struggle for racial equality can learn from previous struggles for gender equality. There's so many different ways we could go with this conversation at this point, but I'm just curious on something you said earlier around diversity in all its forms. So whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's culture, whether it's race, um, whether it's age, what do you think we might have learned from those previous struggles? And they're still going on. So I don't want to pretend that those struggles are over and there's equity across all those groups because there isn't. What do you think we, what's worked and what hasn't worked, do you think, from those previous struggles? What lessons can we draw?
1: I think we've learned the long lesson. Or after, after a long time, I think the lesson we've learned is that in order to best understand the attributes and experiences of minority community, you need to hear from them. Um, they need to lead their committees. They need to lead the action and the, I guess, strategic orientation of how an organisation goes regarding that issue. And I say this because, I mean, uh, historically the feminist movement has has been banging its head against the wall because decisions made for for women were collectively made by a group of men. And to this day, you can watch a panel discussion on, or a current affairs program discussing migrant communities and the problem with the Africans or the problem with the Muslims. And there were neither an African or a Muslim on a panel. So it's startlingly obvious. And, and we know how ridiculous it would seem to the establishment of the system if a bunch of women decided to discuss the future of men. But, and, and, and when you say that, they say that's extraordinarily ridiculous. I was like, well, this is our reality. You know, we we become the subject matter, but we're no longer experts because, you know, you you somehow believe that because we've been othered, we don't have the capacity or the agency or the knowledge to represent ourselves and our issues. And the reality is these communities, these diverse communities in the UK, the US and Australia have been there for two, three, four generations. They are British, they are American, they are Australian, um, but somehow they're continuously othered uh, to the point where they become a problem to be discussed by experts in the field. And that kind of patronising and that looking down and dumbing down and muting, I think, is a lesson that we've learned that women didn't put up. And so we still have a ridiculous gender pay gap and we still have, you know, you know the, the equity and the factors between what women and men Receive and endure in countries like the US and UK and Australia are pretty appalling. I mean Europe seemed to be doing a much better job. But it's the sign because women have been able to take the helm and say, well, this is this is what we demand, because this is what we're worth.
0: The wit, the warmth, the wisdom of Steve Crescenzo culminated in one of my favourite episodes ever. Steve has spent decades working alongside and training thousands of ic professionals and advising business leaders he's on a mission to take the corporate out of corporate communications steve says the job of communicators is to make the important interesting like many comps pros he started out in journalism which prompted one of my first questions Was there a a lesson that you learned in those early days of kind of honing your craft as a journalist that you still draw on today?
2: Yeah, there's so many. There's so many. I would say I've had to pick one. It's especially one that applies to employee communications or corporate communications. It's don't bury the lead. Uh, (laughs) Corporate writers have a big habit of writing these long, thumb-sucking three-paragraph leads that have nothing to do with the story. They're just talking about how great the company is, you know, in an ongoing effort. It's my least favorite phrase. In an ongoing effort to provide you with the blah, 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 or to become the world's leading global solutions provider in blah, 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 blah. And then in about the fourth paragraph, you get the news. Uh, when I edit my client's copy, the first thing I do is lop off the first two paragraphs or so because it's just, it's all the boilerplate stuff. So don't bury the lead or don't bury the news. Make sure if you're going to use a quote that that quote is good enough to fight its way into the story. Don't just put wiggly marks around, you know, some VP's words because you need to have a VP quoted in the story. And all he does is repeat what's already been said, or you know, you make up the quote. So I always work with hard with my clients to say, you know what, if we don't get a good quote, it doesn't have to have a quote. We don't have to have a quote in the story. I'd rather have no quote than a bad quote. And how do you get good quotes by actually talking to people? That's one of the things that enrages me about so many corporate writers is that they're writing off PowerPoint decks. They're writing off other papers. They're writing, they're doing email interviews. They're not going to see people. They're not picking up the phone. And as a journalist, that's where all the color comes from. That's where all the personality comes from. That's where the drama comes from, the passion, the emotion, the humanity. It comes from actually talking to people and we just don't do enough of that. And it drives me crazy.
0: That is music to my ears. I have a whole team of writers and I want that whole floor of my office to be empty because I want those people out, Ouch. walking the corridors, as you say, sitting down with people and getting the story firsthand. And and it's it's so hard to get those quotes any other way because people have to feel their shoulders drop, I think, to actually start telling you a story. You know, that old trick of putting the pen down at the end when it's supposed to signify we're off the record. Like right, right,
2: right, right. Putting the pen down or turning the kit, the recorder off. And then that's exactly. the that stuff happens.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then you say, wow, you know, that must have been an amazing experience. And they say, yeah. And you know what? And all of a sudden, after an hour, they've given you the first line of the story.
2: <laughs> oh so, <laughs> right. the- so right. I love it, Katie. I, in my writing seminars, I say, there's a four stages, you know, and you got to dig. The first stage, they just they just don't even want to talk. <laughs> a lot of them, they're just you know shy or just awkward, and they feel like they're being interviewed by the media. Uh, the second stage, they start to open up a little bit, but they just give you all the corporate boilerplate. Third stage, if you're good and you keep pressing, you know they start to open up a little bit, but it's that that last question, which is, and how did that make you feel? Did, were you proud that day when you went home and told your spouse or your kids? Did you? What was your biggest fear about that? What 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 kept you up at night? That last question is where you get the quotes. And we don't get to that last question enough. And that's what makes it cool. So I would say, you know, don't bury the lead as number one and get a great quote as number two, or don't use a quote at all.
0: I went on to ask Steve about his rules for creating great content. I'm wondering about content and content creation I believe you have four Cs. I don't know if we've got time to talk about all of the Cs, but I know that listeners love really handy, practical guidance and tips. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your your rules for creating content.
2: Yeah, well, I, I have I have I have two rules basically. One is one is the four Cs, which I've been teaching for years, and something that I came up with because it just is a simple way to think about things to keep you on track for great content to, you know, because, you know, communicators develop bad habits. Even great communicators fall into ruts. We get beaten down by the approval process. We get beaten down by our stakeholders. We're constantly pressed for time. So we, we, you know, check a box, take the easy way out. So, you know, we need something to kind of keep us on the right path whenever possible. And for me, it's the four C's. The first C is creative. Whenever possible, we have to, that's making the important interesting. Taking a creative way, whether it's you know, doing a, a gamification instead of a regular article, whether it's doing a, a TikTok video instead of, you know, something else, which, so you know, what's the, I mean, people are not paying attention to the corporate communication anymore. They're too busy. They're too young. My 21-year-old son, he interned for us last year, and we took him out an audit. We went out to Nebraska Medicine in Omaha, and we looked at all their vehicles, and he said, yeah, they're, they're mostly using uh, email in this thing called an intranet, which is like a website, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, nobody my age is reading emails and nobody my age goes to websites. <laughs> so so what are they doing to the younger workers? So we've got to get more creative with what we do. We've got to hook them. Then we've got to be, the third, second C is compelling. we got to find some compelling hook. we got to sell the benefits. Why should they care? People's attention spans are an inch big this day, these days, and it's flooded with good stuff. You know, they, they have a lot of options. Why would they read our stuff on safety? Why would they read our stuff on a corporate initiative? We have to make it compelling. Three, the third C is conversational. We've got to strip out the jargon, strip out the corporate speak. I tell my executives all the time when when they're writing poorly, which they often do, they're trying to optimize, they're leveraging and they're implementing and they're shifting core competencies and they're shifting paradigms and they're using all these words that nobody ever uses in the real world. I say, hey, buddy, use your weekend words. Use the words you use on the weekend when you're at the golf course or the poker club or the wherever you do on the weekends, use the weekend words without the swearing. That's it. Without the cussing. And they, they, you know, their scale sometimes comes off their eyes, Katie. They're like, I I don't have to say optimize. I don't have to say leverage. I just say use. I don't have to say utilize. I can say use. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. Use the weekend words. No executive would ever go home and say to his wife, honey, as we shift from the Eating area to the sleeping area. We need to look at your core competencies <laughs> and let, maybe shift a few paradigms because I've got some low hanging fruit issues. And if we're going to be a world class family, we need to copulate more frequently on a regular cadence. Um, no, they say, hey, 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 honey, you wanna? It's been like nine months. Um, you know, talk the way you talk to your wife, your kids, your friends. Um, so that's the third C is conversational, and the fourth one is maybe the most important one: concise. Nobody has a lot of time for what we're doing. Now, does that mean you can't be creative? You can be concise and creative. Infographics, short videos. You know, I, I know a lot of my clients, they, they do these wonderfully creative videos, but they're four minutes long. And I tell them, you might as well ask people to watch Gone with the Wind. Um, nobody's going to watch a corporate video. I don't care how good it is for four minutes. So to me, though, I mean, we got to be creative to hook them because they're moving through our content so quickly. You know, we've got to get their attention. We've got to be creative. Compelling, so they see the benefits to them. Conversational, so they don't get confused and lost and see a jargon, and they actually relate to what the person's saying and the writing. And then we got to be concise. Meaning, and if people say, what does that mean, Steve? How long can an online article be? And I say as short as humanly possible without leaving anything important out. You know, get rid of all the jargon, all the excess words, all the crap, all the corporate garbage, and whatever's left whatever it is it is it can be 400 words it could be 300 words you're not going to be able to do all four all the time sometimes you're just going to you know have to crank something out you're not going to be creative that's fine that's in that middle bucket but when you're doing the big work you should try to apply the four c's
0: and finally listen to steve explain how we may be fighting the wrong battles as internal comms pros
2: we fight the battle to make a deadline, and we're always on deadline, so we rush things. And we fight the battle to make create something that makes it through the approval process. And we win those battles most of the time. And who cares because nobody read it? Who cares if you win the first two battles if, if, if nobody read it? And that's I always try to get people to fight the only battle that matters, and that's for people's attention. Um, and that's what I think we need to get to. Next, what being a counselor is all about. And you know what? A lot of it is speaking truth to power. As a consultant, half my job is telling people that their baby's ugly. You know, your baby's ugly. You know, your, your corporate mission, vision, values stink. Um, they're generic. They don't mean anything. Nobody's paying attention to them. Or your CEO column or your CEO video is, you know, your 15-minute CEO video is awful. It looks like a hostage video. It looks like you're talking into a camera and reading a script and somebody's standing behind you with a machete. i got to go in there and tell them that as a consultant. I wish more employee communicators would have that confidence and view themselves as consultants Say, listen, it is going to be kind of a hard day. I got to go tell the VP of finance that his last 24 minute video uh, on the quarterly earnings is a, a really, really ugly baby. And nobody's going to listen to it and nobody's going to watch it. And he, it's just, it's hard. It's, it's not easy. I'm not saying any of this is easy, but once you accomplish it, it's so rewarding. It's so right when you can actually speak truth to power and make a difference.
0: In theory, the internet and mobile technology has resulted in many new and exciting ways to connect with our employees. But in reality, too many of you tell me that digital comms is not where it can and should be inside your organization. So how do we tackle this challenge? Frank Wolf spent seven years as a business consultant at Accenture and then became responsible for social technologies and collaboration solutions at T-Mobile. Then in 2014, he became one of the co-founders of the IC app and intranet staff base. Given his experience, I had lots of questions for Frank. Here we talk about why it's so important to be where the party is in terms of posting our content.
3: And here's one big thing that for that for comms is, is very important in the whole context. The, the thing is, if you are head of internal comms for a large company, your goal and you, uh, your clear task is to get out the important information that the company expects you to get out with a lot of reach. And, and uh, you want to make sure that all people read this. So your big goal is, to have your content side by side with other content that employees very much care about, right? In Germany, the first example would be you want to have the meal plan next to your comms. You can also have the shift plan next to your comms. But the big danger that you have as as an internal comms professional today is to end up with a single purpose news app just for your news, and everything else that employees care about happens somewhere else, which makes it very easy for employees to ignore your news, right? Uh, so this kind of uh, to give you an example from the from the Microsoft world, right? A couple of uh, consultants would probably come in and say, "Yes, the interaction, the collaboration happens in Microsoft Teams. The buy and sell channel or the social channel could be in Yammer, and the news are in SharePoint." If you actually do that. This means employees would use maybe Teams, they use Yammer, they would never open the SharePoint app on their mobile phones, as an example. So it's very important to understand I want to be where kind of everyone else is, where the party is, like in in the party, everyone's standing in the kitchen, you know, Uh, as we all know. So as a communicator, you want to be in the kitchen too, probably uh, with your channel.
0: Basically, you want to go where the action is. It's much easier to meet people on their turf where they like to be, where they want to hang out and have those conversations than it is to create your own empire somewhere else and invite people to it and hope they might drop drop in. Um, that's what you're saying, basically, I think.
3: That's, that's what I'm saying. And there's, a, there's this one big, let's say, if. And the big if is, uh, uh, especially what we've seen with social intranets, that communicators... Or like companies combined all that you would have in a typical intranet with collaboration spaces and collaboration tools, right? Um, and that's a challenge and it's a challenge because this collaboration area, that's big. It's noisy. It's messy. There are a lot of channels and it's very hard to be, to get through there, you know? That's why it's it's a, it's a big discussion, and I'm I'm a bit a big uh, advocate for it. Not to say today, okay, we have things like Teams, Microsoft Teams, or Slack, to collaborate, and you could also could I just open up another room in there and use this for internal comms? I would say that's probably too noisy, right? So that's a very big kitchen uh, with a lot of people in there, and you are very just one voice out of hundreds or of thousands others. So It's a trade-off between not being on yourself with your own channel, but also not going deep into the noise.
0: Despite being a technology expert, Frank was clear on the importance of branding your news and creating one clearly identifiable, trusted source of truth.
3: What's really getting very important in that uh, sense is uh, as we call this the internal branding of your channel, right? Because, I'll give you one example: if you have Microsoft Teams today, and you would say, "Okay, I want to also bring in all the the stuff that I bring out as communication in one of the team rooms," there, you open up a team room that's called Corporate News. Somebody else opens up a room maybe with Company News. Somebody else like saying Local News. So people are confused. So. Your goal with the more platforms you have, your goal should be to have a clear internal brand. And that was pretty clear like 10 years ago. Everyone would agree with this. If you have an intranet, it would have a name. If you would have a printed uh, newspaper, it would have a name. Uh, we, We also think you need this name today more than ever, especially as you publish your content across platforms, right? So employees can see this again, especially also on mobile and so on. Um, See, recognize the brand, have trust in the brand, and say, okay, I know that's official, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. I love that idea. I mean, we've been saying for years to, to clients that this isn't a news channel, this is a news brand. Yeah. Because, you know, as consumers, That's what we're buying. We're buying into the brand, whether we buy um, the New York Times, The Economist, The Telegraph, whatever it is we're buying. Uh, And that brand, that news brand, has a tone of voice. It has themes and issues and commentators and opinion writers that fit with the brand, and it knows its audience. Yes. Um, And I I love it when clients get that because I think it's really, really exciting, Um, and it, it helps forge a deeper relationship with the people that, Inter- interact with it, basically, as well.
3: Absolutely. And, and you could even go further and say, one big thing that brands do is reduce complexity in our decision-making, right? So if you take one of our customers, BMW, if I hear BMW, I know, hey, that's a fast, that's a sports car, you know? So they achieve that they can attach this to their brand. And this means, for me, it, there's a, it takes away complexity. And the same... If you have an internal brand that you have built up over the years, and I know this is the internal communications brand and it's coming from them, I just know if I like it or not, but I know this is official, right? And that's the big, big question that a lot of employees ask today with a lot of the the things that they see. Is this official? Who said this, right? Can I trust this? And that's Mm -hmm. what this brand really, really can do.
0: It's interesting that that I think that's so right. We hear a lot clients say, we need a single source of truth. And there's so much noise. At some point, you need a home for this single source of truth to know that's what's going on. I trust it. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. During the year that I spent researching my book, From Cascade to Conversation, it became obvious really early on that the best conversationalists are actually the best listeners. So I went in search of people who listen for a living, or more specifically, who listen to save lives. Hostage negotiators. Chris Voss is perhaps the world's most renowned hostage negotiator. He was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, and in all spent 24 years with the Bureau, persuading terrorists, Bank robbers and kidnappers to change their behaviour. In this clip, I asked Chris how he would react to a stakeholder challenge we have all faced at some point in our careers. To make this really valuable to many of the listeners is going to be I think they've got a senior stakeholder, a difficult business leader in their comms role, they're probably having to advise this person, get them to sign off on something, get their agreement to something. And this is a stressed out senior person who, I, the, the phrase I hear from my clients when they're trying to negotiate with senior people is they say, he or she just doesn't get it. They just don't get it. From what you're saying, you should we shouldn't be worried about them getting us. We need to spend more time getting them. In other words, understanding what's driving their animosity or the reason they don't want to sit down and listen or they don't want to agree. We've got to get more under the skin of what's driving their behavior.
4: Yeah. And that's that's the shortcut. I mean, it seems ridiculously indirect, but it is the accelerator. It is the shortcut. I mean, if you're saying to yourself, they just don't get it. Ronald Reagan had a phrase, if you're explaining, you're losing. (laughs) you're losing you're losing them you're losing a relationship you're losing ground you know flip it around and also demonstrating understanding getting a that's right out of the other side the crazy thing is it has a tremendous clarifying effect for you the leveling that it does for you I mean, it does more for you to get a that's right out of them than it does for them, and it does a lot for them. So there's kind of this virtuous circle as opposed to a downward spiral from the difference in the approaches.
0: It's almost a reciprocal feeling that you're getting from that, where you both there's been a bridge that's built, I suppose, between you, I guess. There's a
4: there's a bridge that's built and you're going to get clarity on solutions if you can articulate it from their point of view. You're going to find clarity. You're going to see outcomes that you didn't see before. And many people, again, if you're pitching, if you're saying, you know, they just don't get it, you're probably fixed on a goal. And if you're fixed on a goal, then by definition, you've got tunnel vision. You've got blind on And, you know, you're missing better outcomes.
5: Mm,
0: I've heard you say actually that, are you so fixed on what you want to achieve that you wouldn't actually settle for something better?
4: Exactly.
0: (laughs) And I thought, yeah. Yeah, never be so sure (laughs) of what
4: you want that you wouldn't take
0: something better. Yeah, exactly. So coming at things with a much more open mindset to actually say, I'm just gonna survey the terrain here. Right. What do I have? Who do I have in front of me? Who are they? What's driving them? What what's their value set? I might uncover an even better deal just by doing that from the sound. Yeah,
4: well, absolutely. And and you know, I can explain to you intellectually why there's always a better deal, but until people have been willing to engage in a process and then discovered on a regular basis, if I just remain open. And mm. we can say intellectually, we can say, all right, yeah, so just be open to a better deal. Everybody's going to say, yeah, 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 okay, I, 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 of course I'm open. But then they get into a conversation with this approach, and they go like, I don't know where it's going. I, You know, I, I don't know where it's going. I thought you were open. To be open by definition means you don't know where it's going. Yeah. So it yeah. takes some getting used to.
0: How about those people, we do meet them in life that just, I don't know if they're introverted or for whatever reason they just don't like to speak. You get monosyllabic answers. What's your approach in those kinds of situations where someone, whatever you try, they're just not being forthcoming?
4: Well, uh, one of two things: they're not forth—they're not forthcoming in the moment. You know that—that that, that's an attribute of people that we refer to as analysts. Uh, you know, and there was a C- uh, CEO of a company we were given some training to one time, highly analytical dude. He said. Never answer an email sooner than 36 hours. <laughs> so it's, he's, he's not responsive in the moment. You know, he's monosyllabic no. uh, when people are talking to him. Just, you know, if you're patient, he'll talk. Now, our real dilemma in negotiations is when we ask a question, when we're seeking information, we prefer the information now rather than 36 hours. And Absolutely. so, you know, what we did in my company was we took some hostage negotiation skills. And we figured out how to get that guy or gal to talk to me now. You know, what's shutting them down? Their trust issues. Analysts like to think through 75 potential outcomes. So how do I get them talking now where they don't feel like they've got to commit? You know, simple little things, instead of with an analytical person, never say I disagree, say let's compare information. Uh-huh. Because they're always willing to compare things, because by definition. You're not seeking to tie them down in the moment, you know? And so they go, uh, let's compare information. They go, oh, okay, sure. Because there's no commitment there. Or, or the other thing I get the biggest kick out about analysts is they love the word dispassionate.
0: <laughs> How true is that?
4: And so the crazy thing is they're very passionate about being dispassionate, <laughs> which if you think about it, is schizophrenic. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's the the old joke about atheists, you know, the people that really have got the religion. It's just a different religion. They just very passionately don't believe in God. But it's that feeling, isn't it? It's true, isn't it? They
4: have a very strong belief in not believing, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: I wholeheartedly recommend Chris's book, Never Split the Difference, negotiating as if your life depended on it. It's full of practical advice and some really great stories. I asked him to explain two key tactics from his book, mirrors and labels.
4: We're at the point now where we actually, if we need information, we're coaching people to never ask a question. You know, we're taught if you, most people know they got to gather information and they're taught, well, ask good questions. No, 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 You're at the, you're playing at the low stakes table if you're asking questions. Your tactical application labels, triggers, unvarnished downloads of information, the questions never will. So, we we're coach, we coach people some of our training sessions, make a list of your questions. We're going to turn them into other tools, mostly labels, and we're going to show you how to get more information by moving from questions into labels. And you got to know what you're doing right. in order to pull that
0: off. Right. But coming back to my senior stakeholder who doesn't want to talk to me, saying something like, it seems like now is a bad time to start having this conversation with you, or it seems like this is the conversation you really don't want to have, Is better than saying, do you want to have this conversation?
4: <laughs> oh, that's, that's brilliant stuff. I mean, that that would be a perfect way to start that because when people are, when you get the feeling they don't want to be in a conversation with you, they know they're generating that. If you ignore that, the message they're picking up is you're there to ignore their communication which now triggers a downward, why do I want to talk to somebody who's aware that I don't want to talk to them and you're pressing on? But to immediately say, it seems like you're not comfortable with this right now, is gonna trigger relief on the other side and gonna return some feelings of control back to them. And they're actually much more likely to continue as a result.
0: 2020 pushed many of us into the spotlight as we sought to inform, connect and reassure our workforces amid ever-changing government guidelines and general business uncertainty. In the summer, I spoke at an online event about imposter syndrome and was really surprised by the hundreds of people who attended it seems that many of us engage in self-limiting behavior that comes at a cost to ourselves and our organizations. To learn more about imposter syndrome, I turn to an expert. Dr. Valerie Young is the author of The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, why capable people suffer from imposter syndrome and how to thrive in spite of it. She regularly speaks to men and women across the business community about overcoming those feelings that you're faking it and that pretty soon everyone will see straight through you. So in researching this subject, I also came across the opposite. I don't know if it truly is the opposite. It felt like the opposite, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Would that be fair? I mean, is that the opposite? And For me, it sounded far worse than having imposter syndrome.
6: Yeah. You know, I wrote about um, a similar notion, kind of irrational self-confidence syndrome in my book, right? (laughs) So if 70% of people at one time or another have had these feelings, what's up with the other 30? So some part of that 30 has what you accurately name as the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's named after Professor Dunning at Cornell University, who through hundreds of studies, this has been studied, you know, repeatedly, found that the most confident student who was just sure they were going to ace the exam, they're the smartest guy in the room, they would consistently do worse than the person who was convinced they were going to be, was going to be terrible, they were going to fail, they weren't prepared, they would do the best. So, so what? You know, what they concluded is people who don't know what they're doing don't know that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Or, or they think they know way more than they really do, but they're incredibly confident in, in their lack of knowledge. <laughs> but they, yes. Uh, yeah. Which is very interesting when you think about it because the research shows, Katie, that in a leaderless group, people are more willing to follow the more confident person over the more competent person. Right which is kind of frightening when you think about it, right? Very frightening. You sound like you know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. Let's go with the confident person. And I think a lot of us are focusing on becoming more and more competent, getting more certifications and degrees and experience, when perhaps what many of us should be focusing on is feeling uh, and projecting more confidence, even when we don't always feel it.
0: Can that be done? Because... I completely agree with you. But are there certain things you can be saying to yourself? I mean, there's that link, I suppose, between having the thought and then feeling something, which has taken me a a really long time to learn. I'm I'm ashamed to say it actually, but it really has. Is that the way to sound more confident, just to have a different thought running through your head?
6: Oh, you have to have a different thought. I mean... You could walk on stage and be thinking to yourself, I'm going to die. It's going to be terrible. (laughs) Or you know, it's the kind of, your body doesn't know the difference between fear and excitement. Right. Right. Sweaty palms, nervous stomach, dry throat. So I would much rather, whether it's going to a job interview or a meeting or step up to the podium and say to myself, you know, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited. Uh, But you don't have to believe it. No, okay. Right. Uh, you, but you have to keep going regardless of how you feel. You know, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, but that's not how it works. Feelings are the last to change. Right. You have to, the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter and then you know, do that thing, jump in, trusting that you can kind of figure it out as you go. And if you don't know, you can pick up the phone and call someone. There's all these resources around where you can figure out things that you don't already know.
0: A self-confessed data geek, Benjamin Ellis started his tech career as a young boy building computers and writing software in his bedroom. He went on to work in Silicon Valley and has now worked at the cutting edge of technology and communication for over three decades. Now, I have long wanted to quiz Benjamin about research and measurement. But first, I asked him for some definitions. I think I use the words research and measurement interchangeably. I'm sure I do. But I also, at the back of my mind, know that those things are probably different. So let's get the playing field. <laughs> let's understand <laughs> the playing field, as it were. or put some guardrails up around this conversation. Research, measurement, are they the same things? Do you think of them differently? How do they intersect?
7: So we think of them very deliberately, very differently. And, and again, there can be different definitions. But a helpful frame, um, and this is helpful p- for people to understand what they're doing, is to think about research as generating new knowledge. It's about discovery, about proving, about disproving things. Very few organizations actually get to do research. We are phenomenally privileged here that we get to do both kind of our own resource and pay for primary research, going out, discovering new things, understanding new things. I love that. Um, That's my kind of explorer gene likes that. Measurement is about understanding the impact of things usually, or understanding what's changing. Again, it can be other things, but that's a useful frame. And you need those two things. You need to discover new stuff, which is going to lead you to a course of action. And then you need to measure whether what you're doing is working and making a difference or not. And that bit, that measurement bit, is really challenging for for most because it touches on all sorts of challenging cultural things in organisations.
0: Thank you for that. That's very, very clear. So then what are some of the common misconceptions or mistakes that people make when it comes to either or both research and measurement? I bet there's a lot of them actually, but do you see the common mistakes coming up and time and time and time again, or at least kind of the same questions coming up from clients?
7: Oh, I get what you mean. And I always have to separate kind of what the most common issues are from things that just wind me up.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, we can
7: start there if you like. Well, can okay, we start? So one of the things, and it is a genuine issue, is um, in science, there's this idea of kind of falsifiability and the idea of kind of cognitive biases that come in when we're doing research, because we're, we're kind of researching people, but we're people ourselves. So it's a really weird construct. It's like things looking at things. Um, oftentimes, people will go out to gather evidence that something is true, and that seems to logically make sense. It is phenomenally dangerous. You know, if I said I want to go out and uh, I'm going to prove that pink elephants exist, well, I can go out and do that because I can go out and somewhere I will find a pink elephant. It might be a bath toy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I can come back and go, do you know what? Pink elephants exist. That's not actually a useful insight. And a lot of the time, what I see is people kind of decide something and they go out to look for the evidence to prove that they are right. Most of the time, you actually want to go out and find evidence to prove that you're wrong and hope that you don't find any. that's a dramatic Mm. difference, right? So you can go and find, if I want to find a metric, and this can be a short conversation with some leadership teams, if they want a metric that's gonna make them look good, you can find one, you can construct one, you can go and you can find evidence. You're ignoring oftentimes the reality of what's going off. So actually really you want to go and look at the opposite thing, right? Investigating where things aren't working, will tell you so much more than looking at where they are. But that's really hard for people because to the measurement piece, oftentimes what you're gonna discover is what you're doing didn't work or you failed.
4: Mm, mm. And
7: one of the things that differentiates kind of high growth, innovative businesses from those that are not so much is actually the attitude towards failure and viewing it as learning and iteration as opposed to somebody's failed, get rid of them. you know oftentimes in starting a startup you'll actually hire the people who have failed lots because they know what failure looks like and they know what not to do right and they can spot those signs um and it's the same with culture right Uh, you know you kind of want to look at where things aren't working so you can address that and let the working bit carry on so that thing about going out to prove that you're right is is my kind of pet bugbear and, and one that i'll often challenge people on Are you gathering evidence to find out if things aren't working? Because that's what you need to fix.
0: I found my conversation with Benjamin really insightful. Towards the end, he explains how we can get better at measuring our comms activities.
7: The way to get good at measurement is to do it repeatedly and to build it into everything that you do because we were talking about how like, a survey is a conversation, research is a conversation. Actually measurement is a conversation with yourself sometimes, because when you say, how am I gonna measure this? That takes you to the question of, well, what does success look like? And how will I know I've achieved that? We often talk about two different types of measurement. Success measurement, how do I know that this was successful? And an impact measurement, how do I know that what I did actually made the difference? Right. Um, and there's a really uh, um, one of our, one of our testers is a, a, a amateur pilot. I guess you come call me his amateur, you know he flies, um, and um, he has all sorts of great flying stories. But one of them is you know this kind of doing doing a flying lesson with an instructor, and you know coming down, and the pilot lands, and this is great landing, and you know just absolutely perfect, and turns to the instructor says, "Well." how was that, did I pass? And the instructor's like, that was a fantastic landing. It was perfect, but this is the wrong runway. <laughs> and yeah, oftentimes I've seen that. Particularly, we kind of we create an idea, it turns into a comms program, it turns into these outputs and we do this thing. It's like, it gets executed perfectly, it's a perfect landing, it's completely the wrong runway. It's like, back here, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, we were trying to get line managers more engaged in recruiting new staff and you know, actually what we've ended up with is xyz so actually that discipline and measurement even if you don't do it thinking about how you would measure it takes you to what does success look like how do i know that's happened and again to getting good at measurement just keep trying it it doesn't have to be complicated um yeah you, know, you, you can um power up metrics we talk a lot about in startups right um you you can kind of hack these things. It's like, well, I, I you know, maybe I don't have any budget for measurement, but I want to show it works or start with it. I'm gonna send something out and I'm gonna eight people randomly and say, hey, did you get that? What did you think of it? What would you do differently? That's measurement, right? It's a random sample. Yeah. Um that, you know, that might take half an hour, an hour of your time. You can go do that. And then you can start to understand, well actually I want to construct things that kind of give me feedback that let me change things. And then you can start to build measurement in. Um, you know, Usually whenever we do a survey, we have some some feedback in there. Continuous improvement is a big thing for us. And that means kind of measuring, what did you think of it? this? Giving people the opportunity to say, and, and that's a form of measurement as well. So there is no excuse for not doing it.
0: <laughs> the agency that I run, AB, was founded back in 1964 by Anthony Buckley, hence the name Now, I'm not sure if we really are the world's oldest IC agency. I'm guessing we come quite close. Listeners, if you do know of one that's older, please let me know. I wanted to ask them all about those early days, 50 odd years ago, what it was like talking to leaders about internal communications long before the phrase employee engagement had even been coined. It was a really fascinating conversation, but we did stray into many, many other areas. Here is Tim explaining the difference between leaders that want a window and leaders that merely want a mirror.
8: I think there is a, a real tension between the, the, the really powerful role of internal communications and that ability to hold the mirror up to the executive yes. suite and say, guys, look at yourselves. If you think you're looking at the guys who are delivering for you, you're delusional. I have to hold up a window for you to get the truth. A mirror isn't going to give it to you. If you hold up a mirror and they say, that looks brilliant, <laughs> you've, they're failing. And I, I couldn't do it because they wanted, a, they wanted mirrors. They didn't want windows. Because internal communications, I always saw it as bridge building. There is no doubt about it, at the executive suite, particularly in a big organisation, the pressures for them are very different to the pressures to the guys, the the men and women who are making stuff. But unless you've built bridges between the two, unless the guys at the executive suite get the pressures and the understanding at the front line, and unless the front line understand and get the pressures of the executive suite, you're never going to to have dialogue. And that needs to be both about vocabulary, it needs to be about integrity, it needs to be about the prosaic stuff of fact, it needs to be about whether the driver of pure profit is correct, or whether actually the need for employee satisfaction and engagement I, I I've always struggled with the word of engagement, not because I don't think it's important, but I think measuring it is almost impossible Greece. but i think I think the I think that that piece that says that the a b if you if you could have every organization had that a ness box, whether it's you know whether it's BT-ness or whether it's british gasless, it doesn't really matter. it's the bit that says actually I understand why I'm doing this. You know, the apothecary question of, you know, the, 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 the gardener at is so what are you doing? Are you, you expect him to say, I'm mowing the lawn, so now I'm helping to put a man on the moon. Uh, it, 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 is, it, is, it is as trite and as simple as that. But until you've built bridges, the person mowing the lawn is never going to understand why a neat lawn is going to help put a man on the moon.
0: Towards the end of our conversation, I asked Tim whether he ever needed to get quite creative to explain the importance of good IC to business leaders. Did you have any particular technique uh, to con- when you're consulting at that senior level with leaders about becoming a little bit more honest over the narrative? Did you, was, there, was there a technique you used? Was there a story you used to tell? Because I think that's a challenge that listeners are going to have quite a lot.
8: You, you have to be a bit creative sometimes. There was one audit I was doing where I was sitting down with the CEO who um, I, I, was trying to, I was trying to explain why he had to explain change in terms of why something has to happen, not just do it. And he was um, – he, he, he didn't really get it. He just thought that the edict from above was, should be enough. You know, I, I, I'm, I've been employed into this role – It was a man in this situation. I've been employed in this role. And what I say, based on my executive team's input, should be enough. And I was sitting there, and and however I tried to frame this, he was like, hmm. So eventually I said to him, just stand on your chair. And he said, what do you mean? I said, just stand on your chair. He said, what are you trying to tell me? I said, I'm not gonna tell you, just do it. Just stand on your chair. And And he was getting really cross. So I said, okay. If I explain to you that by standing on your chair, you'll be you'll be concentrating, half concentrating on how to balance, and you might answer this question in a different way, you might be tempted to stand on your chair. But me just telling you to stand on your chair was never going to get you to do it. And he stopped and he looked at me and he went. He called me names. (laughs) Um, And I said, I said, it's not. I'm not trying to tell you that you sometimes don't have to give some control and command, command and control. I said, but unless that's supported by why, the first question that we can wind our parents up with is why. Absolutely. And it's the last question we should always keep asking because quite frankly, so I, I I don't have an answer onto how to convince a senior team to be honest and open and to carry the integrity, except asking why they're not.
0: Yes, yes.
8: Um, or getting them to stand on their chairs.
0: <laughs> Thank you, sir Here in the UK, our National Health Service is often described as a jewel in our crown. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, we found even deeper appreciation for the 1.5 million employees fighting on the front line to save our loved ones. In December 2020, I asked three senior communicators to reflect on a year like no other. Amanda Nash is Head of Communications at Plymouth Hospital's NHS Trust. Ross Wiggum is Deputy Communications Director at Northumbria Foundation Trust. And Adam Brimelow is Director of Communications at NHS Providers. Now it was really hard to choose just one clip from this fascinating and at times often emotional conversation. But here my guests reflect on the impact of the pandemic on the internal comms community across the National Health Service.
5: My impression is that the NHS comms community has come together as never before over this period. And we've seen this in a number of ways. I suppose the most visible way to us has been through the the WhatsApp group that's associated with our comms leads network where we see the exchange of ideas people requesting and exchanging information but also empathy and friendship and support and so sort of communication happening across all kinds of different types of levels that I can really see gives value and I think that's something that that's really valuable and I hope we're able to sustain you know in the coming months whatever happens with with the pandemic and I think that's important to to build on that. The other thing I think that is is helpful is the way that my senses, and I'd be interested to hear from Ross and Amanda about this, but we produced a report quite recently that looked at the experience of NHS comms during the pandemic, right? My sense is that there's a real recognition as never before now of the strategic value of comms and the contribution that comms can make in terms of navigating and steering through really difficult situations recognized by board leadership but also across organizations with other stakeholders as well and i i really believe and i hope that that will be a lasting legacy of this i agree
7: i think that's an absolutely fundamental point and, and, and you know we've been really around the top table which is some i know people people go on about a lot and have asked for it and sort of finding we've got it if you like in I know just speaking from personal experience and from the shared experience that people pass on to me through the network is that, you know, communication, heads of communications and comms directors are are closer to the chief execs and boards than they've ever been.
9: I'd agree with Adam and um, Ross, Katie, definitely. It's been an unparalleled time. I feel very lucky. I work in a trust where I'm definitely, um, you know, work very closely and. a, um, invited to all of our executive team meetings. So I was already at the table, which put me in a very good position. I think my learning has really been about the impact of communications on those we communicate with. And if I can just read you one of the things that we've all had some emotional moments, haven't we, um, as Ross was saying, but this was one of the moments that got me. We just got a little note back in from some, one of our members of staff who was about May or June, I think, so a few months in. And she said, I would just like to say what a fantastic job you have done during this pandemic. When the news was full of doom and gloom, you sent positive messages to us. My family members have commented on what, how wonderful it is to see the heartwarming stories on Facebook, etc. This, in particular, helped my children see that it's okay for mummy to be in work when they've been told it's unsafe to be in school. Just thought I'd like I'd like to say a little thank you, mm. and I think. Probably what I've experienced is never before is the thirst for information. There was a real vacuum. People wanted information. They wanted assurance. So whether it was about availability of PPE or which we were using as our red wards or how many patients we had discharged that week, whatever it was, it could be very, very practical stuff. Too. We've also had something called PPE for the mind. We've done lots of psychological sessions, et cetera. Um, I'm a trained coach. We've um, upped our coaching availability during this time. Just about, I think for me, the gratitude is in being in the jobs that we are, we can make a huge positive difference. And I think certainly we have many examples in our organisation of how we've done that. And as Ross says, there's me and Ross times many, many of us right across the country. And the positive difference that will have been made by communications leads both to patients and their families and staff, is something to be celebrated
0: actually. So that brings season four of the show to a close. So that you don't miss an episode of season five, click that subscribe button today. I'd like to take this moment to thank our growing band of loyal listeners for commenting, sharing, writing about the show. You have enabled us to reach more than 55,000 downloads in 50 countries worldwide. So thank you so much for your support. If you are a fan of the show, I'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because I'm told this is the very best way to reach more folks in the IC community who might find the show helpful. And if you know someone who'd make a great guest, please get in touch. You can email us directly at icpodcast at abcom, that's abcom uk. So, my lovely listeners, until we meet again for season five of the show, stay safe and well, and remember, it's what's inside that counts.